Good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, this morning, you can turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. As Pastor Tim said last week, I think it was, um, <clears throat> Deuteronomy was the book that Jesus quoted three times in his fight with Satan in the wilderness. Um, whenever the Satan tempted him multiple times in the wilderness. And Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy in that great combat between him and the devil. And so we're going to read this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 7. Before we do that, will you pray with me? And ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of his word to our hearts and our minds. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning. and We do pray that you would take this text of Scripture and that you would put it in our hearts, that you would send the Holy Spirit, and that he would take the words of Christ and bring them through our ears so that we receive them in our hearts. We believe in the Holy Spirit, and we pray for his presence this morning, for Christ's sake. Amen. I want to read, uh, beginning at verse 1 of Deuteronomy chapter 7, and then we'll read through verse 11, but today we will focus on uh, beginning at verse 6. But just to give some context, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning at verse 1, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you, and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. 
Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible and the last book that Moses wrote. It is a book that opens up in verse 1 of chapter 1. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. This is Moses' farewell sermons to Israel. This is the thing that he wants them to remember. If you know the story of the Old Testament people of God, you know that they have been in the wilderness for 40 long years. God redeemed his people from Egypt. They rebelled eventually, you'll remember. They did not go into the land. So a whole generation, an unbelieving generation, died in the wilderness. And now they are on the verge of crossing the Jordan River to go into the promised land that he promised to their fathers. And if you know the story, you know that Moses, because of his disobedience, is forbidden by the Lord from going into that promised land. Instead, Joshua will take the mantle and lead them into Canaan, into the possession that God has given to them. And it's on this verge, this, this, this crossing over into the promised land that Moses stands on the plains of Moab here and preaches probably to the leaders of Israel because Israel was a, was a whole nation and it would have been very hard to preach to so many uh, people. Probably though to the leaders to gather them together for one last time to remind them who the Lord their God is, who they are as his people and what that means in their relationship with him. That's what he's doing. The, the, the name Deuteronomy means second law, but what Moses is doing here is repeating, reminding, re-emphasizing, reiterating, retelling to them the story of their redemption, the law that he gave to them, and their calling to be a holy people unto the Lord. I've read elsewhere that Deuteronomy is called, uh, is, was actually could be called an everyman's Torah. In, in other words, it doesn't contain all of the, um, you know, whenever you read the book of Leviticus, it can be tough slugging, can't it? You read about all these laws about ceremonies and sacrifices, and, and that's, that's very difficult actually to keep it all in your mind and everything. Well, Deuteronomy doesn't really do that because Moses is here wanting to get to the most vital parts of religion, the most vital parts of what it is to follow God. So in, in Deuteronomy, he reminds them of God's love for them. He reminds them of their whole story with God. He reminds them of the Ten Commandments, of what it was like to stand at Mount Horeb, Sinai. He, he tells them to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their might. He's calling them to devotion unto the Lord their God. And so you can imagine Moses here, um, he's been, the, in a sense, the senior pastor of Israel for 40 years. He's shepherded these people. He's poured his whole life, actually, over the last third, into these people. He loves them. He was there when they came through the sea. He was there whenever they left Egypt. He was there whenever they rebelled against the Lord and made the golden calf. It was Moses who prayed for them and said, Lord, if you don't save them, if you don't keep them as your people, then just blot me out of your book of life. Moses is a great pastor, and he loves the flock of God, Israel. And so we're hearing the words of a faithful shepherd, and in that sense, I think it has parallels 
to 2 Timothy, which is Paul's last words, and to 2 Peter, which contains the last letter that we have from the Apostle Peter. We're reading the last sermons of Moses. And so as we come in here now into Deuteronomy chapter 7, we, we begin here in Deuteronomy chapter 7 with a call from Moses to completely devote to destruction all of the peoples and their idols in the land of Canaan. Complete destruction of the idolaters and complete destruction of their idols. And a complete extermination. He says, you will make no covenant with them, show no mercy to them, you shall not intermarry with them. And why was that? Because idolatry is so easy to fall into. It was going to be so easy, convenient, um, normal to just become an idolater because the gods of the pagans were very easy. They didn't require you to love them with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They required you to make a sacrifice. And then you could go live your life however you wanted to. You could go sacrifice to them anywhere. Not simply one place. The Lord was very direct about, no, you will only worship me at one place, and that's the place I choose. But idolatry was very easy. I could worship God anywhere or pick and choose my gods all over the place. No, no, no. You are mine. And whenever you go into the promised land that I'm giving to you, you will be distinct. And he's going to remind them of the great truth of this fact in verse 8, of why they should do this, they're to be holy, and all of these things. And I love the verse 8 that I'm basing the title of my sermon off of, Because the Lord Loves You. Because the Lord loves you. So we're going to look, beginning at verse 6, but structuring the sermon around that little phrase, because the Lord loves you, we're going to ask, who is this you? What is this love? And who is the Lord? First of all, who is this you? Because the Lord loves you. Why are we to go in and to cleanse the land and to do all these things? Well, he says, verse 6, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. They are a holy people, first of all. This you is Israel. They are a holy people. Israel was cleansed and devoted to the Lord. Now you think about it, before this, before their redemption in Egypt, what were they doing? They were slaves. They were slaves doing the work of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh. And in that sense, they were working for the gods of Egypt. They were in bondage, weren't they? They were in chains, in shackles, serving Pharaoh, serving the Egyptians, serving the pagan deities the false gods of the Egyptians. They lived in a land polluted, contaminated, filthy, full of idols. And no one pitied Israel, did they? No one looked at them and sought to have concern upon Israel. They were grieving, they were groaning, and they were crying out. And eventually we read, right, they cried out to God to fulfill his promises. But here they are enslaved in the filth of Egypt. But what did the Lord do to them? He came into Egypt and brought them out and cleansed them. One author defines holiness as a deeply personal, intense, loving devotion to him, that is God, 
a belonging to him that is irreversible, unconditional, without any reserve on our part. Simply put, it means being entirely his so that all we do and possess are his. Israel had belonged to Egypt and to Pharaoh and to the idols, but God says, no, 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 now you belong to me. You are wholly, completely distinct from them. You belong to me. You are cleansed. So now the hands that once worked for Pharaoh are the same hands now that will be raised to worship the Lord God. The feet that used to trudge in the misery and the muck of the idolatry of Egypt will, be, will now be used to walk to the land of promise that the Lord your God has given you. Just as Aaron the priest, whenever he would go into the tabernacle, do you know what he wore on his turban? It said, holy to the Lord, reserved for God. You are a people that have reserved for God written on your foreheads. You belong to me. They were a holy people, but secondly, he says, you're a chosen people. Who are these you? They are a chosen people. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Israel was a chosen people. Before this, in a sense, Israel, though they had been promised, their fathers had been promised, in a sense, they were just one more nation of the peoples of the earth until the Lord separated them and brought them to himself. But what does the word chosen mean? What does Moses mean when he says, you are a chosen people, you have been chosen? Well, the same word for chosen is used elsewhere in the scriptures. Um, in Genesis 6-2, we read that the sons of God took as their wives any they chose. In Genesis 13-11, we read that Lot, Abraham's nephew, chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. So it can refer to choosing your wife, choosing a piece of real estate that you like instead of another piece of real estate. Moses tells Joshua in Exodus 17 verse 9 to choose men to go out and fight. Moses himself later on chose able men out of all Israel to be chiefs, Exodus 18, 25. And later on in Deuteronomy, God would tell his people, you don't worship just anywhere. You worship at the place that I choose, I decide. Moses eventually will say in Deuteronomy 13, 30 verse 19 to choose life instead of death. The idea here, what he's saying is, is that God chose Israel. He selected Israel. He preferred Israel. Israel in a way that he did not prefer the other nations. Moses here is doing this to highlight to them the great grace and gift it is, as well as the responsibility that comes with it of being chosen by the Lord God. He says, you of all people, a bunch of slaves, a bunch of slaves who were so weak you couldn't set yourselves free. I didn't choose the most powerful superpower in the Egyptians. I didn't choose the seven nations greater, greater and mightier than yourself in the land of Canaan. I chose you, a nation of slaves, foolish, weak slaves. I chose you to be my people in a way that I did not choose them. Israel was low and despised and poor, and yet God chose what is 
weak in the world to shame the strong. The Lord chose Israel the weak in order to shame Egypt and all of the pride of men. Moses is saying, don't you realize what a wonderful gift it is to be the people of God, to be chosen by him. But he says they were chosen to be what? His treasured possession. They're holy people, a chosen people, a treasured people. They're his prized possession. This same word here is used multiple times about Israel specifically, God's people in the Old Testament but it also talks about David in 1 Chronicles 29.3. David speaks about having a treasure of his own, a personal prized possession of gold and silver. Uh, my, my boys in, in their room, they've got, um, they've got some cabinets and some, some places that they've, uh, they've erected in their room. And what do they put on them? Well, for them, it's, it's Lego models or some things like that that they're very proud of. They're prized possessions. And they've put them up on display because they're, they're excited about them. They value them. They don't, if they have other stuff they own, other stuff that is theirs, but there's certain things that go up on the shelf. The Lord God was telling his people, I own the whole earth. All the earth is mine, but you are my prized personal possession. You are valuable to me. I own the whole earth. I own Egypt. I own every single great empire on the face of the earth, but I chose you, a nation of slaves, and you're my prized personal possession. I love you. God told them right after he had redeemed them and right before revealing the law to them in Exodus 19, that they would be his treasured possession among all people. For all the earth is mine. And later on, God would tell his people in Isaiah 43, you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Now, we can't help but recognize some of these words. And as Pastor Dave read earlier, First Peter, the apostle Peter quotes uh, or, or plays off the same idea and imagery. He wrote, writes to these early believers in 1 Peter 2, 9 and says, but you in the New Testament now are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And when you think about it, there may be differences between us and Israel, but we have more in common than we have difference. We were slaves too. Slaves to various passions and pleasures, slaves to sin. But now if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are holy to the Lord. You belong to him. You have been chosen before the foundation of the world. Why? So that you would be holy and blameless before him. Just as God chose Israel, God is saying in the New Testament, I chose you. Notice he didn't choose the conditions of salvation. He chose people. He chose Israel. He chooses the church. He chooses us. To be holy and blameless before him. And he has blessed us in Christ with every single spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What a wonderful, wonderful thing it is to be a Christian. What a wonderful thing it is to be part of the people of God. 
The Lord chose you. He's treasured you, and you are reserved for him. Now you hear these things, and the question comes up, as it, Moses knows it will as well, is why? Why were we made holy? What is the reason Israel was chosen? Why was Israel chosen and not the Egyptians and not the Canaanites? Why are God's people his treasured possession? This is exactly what Moses tells us next in verses 7 and 8. In verses 7, he, Moses, gets rid of some of the reasons. So you notice it's different. It, it's it's uh, the negative first and the positive in verse 8. It was not because of this, but it is because of this. So Moses, first of all, tells us and eliminates any uh, reasons right away, some bad answers. Well, maybe Israel was chosen because they're such a, a really great nation, and God said, you know what? He lined them up and said, yes, that is the people that I want on my team. Or did he look at them and say, wow, they're so good. I, Israel is so holy, so, so faithful. That's why I want them on my team. And I know they'll believe in me. That's not what we read, is it? What does he say, first of all, in verse 7? He says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. What is this love that we're talking about? The, because the Lord loves you, a chosen, treasured, and loved people. Why is that? Because he loves you. What is this love? First of all, it is unmerited and unconditional love. Unmerited and unconditional. In other words, Israel could do nothing to deserve this and nothing to earn this love from God. He says, it was not because of your population. In fact, he tells them explicitly, you are the fewest of all peoples. Egypt is bigger, and all of the nations in Canaan are bigger than you. And one of the commentators says, on the world scale, Israel was a minnow. They're small, insignificant. Israel was Nothing special, like we said, a nation of, of slaves. But also elsewhere, later on in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 9, God will tell them another reason why. Another reason why not. He says, it's not because of your righteousness. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 4 through 5. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out, speaking about the other nations, before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. It is not because Israel was morally superior to every other nation that they got chosen. Why? Was it because of their future faith? Is, is it because God knows, well, in the future, though, Israel's going to be a better people? No, if you read Deuteronomy a little bit farther on, you realize Moses knows. You're going to leave the Lord your God, 
and you're going to go astray and you're gonna serve all the other idols and all these curses are gonna come upon you. So it's not because of anything good in Israel. They're not so big and grand. They're not morally superior and they're not gonna have future faithfulness that buys them God's love. Well, why is it then, God? Why in the world do you love them? Why did you choose them? Why did you prefer them? Why did you select them? Why do you treasure them? Why did you make them holy? Verse eight, because the Lord loves you. Because the Lord loves you. You know, sometimes you, you see those films or maybe you've done this yourself if you're kind of in a sentimental, sad mood and you see people tearing off the flower, right? He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. Well, what Moses here is doing is saying, because he loves me, because he loves me, because he loves me, because he loves me. Why are you here and believing in Jesus Christ? Are you morally superior to everyone else out here who doesn't? Are you grander, better, superior in some way to all of the other unbelievers on the face of this world? What is it that makes you different that the Lord prefers you? Moses says, because he loves you. We love him because he first loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's unconditional love, but secondly, it's bonding or binding or attaching love. He says, the Lord set his love on you. The Lord longs over Israel. In fact, this word is used um, if you'll remember, uh, Jacob has a wife, and Je a wife, a daughter, uh, Dinah, in Genesis, I think it's 34. And whenever she's there, right, there's a, there's a man who falls in love, her, love with her. And he says, and her, the guy's father says, my son longs for your daughter. It's the same word used here. The Lord longs for us, desires us, pursues us wraps us in his arms. He attaches and binds himself to us so that we cannot be separated from his love. Think about it. He holds them fast, but how many times did Israel sin against God? Well, you read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy reiterates all those promise, problems. And then you go into Judges and Joshua and 1 Samuel. You re Israel repeatedly sins against the Lord. They saw all of the wondrous works that he had done in Egypt. They saw God fight for them at the Red Sea and bring them safely through it. God has dropped food from heaven, and yet over and over and over again, they've refused to believe him. They could sing the psalm, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Like sheep, they have gone astray countless times, and yet does the Lord stop and unbind himself from them? No. He set his love on them. He set his love on them. And his steadfast love endures forever. It's a bonding love, but it's also a faithful love. He says, this is love that keeps the promises of salvation. The Lord is keeping the oath 
that he swore to your fathers. And here he's talking back about Genesis chapters you know, 15 and 17 and 22 and 26. And all those times God reiterated the promise and said, I swear by myself, may I cease to be God if I do not save you and redeem you from your sins. May I cease to be God if I don't fulfill all of my promises to you. He's faithful, and he kept every single one of his promises to Israel, and he has done the same to us. He went in and he redeemed his people. That's slave language again. I bought them. I transferred ownership from Pharaoh to me, he's saying. and He bought them with his almighty power so that now he bought a bunch of slaves so that they could be sons and daughters of the living God. Well, like Israel, again, as we read this passage, we realize and know that this same love that was shown to them is shown to us. We read in Titus chapter three, verses four through five, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Because of his great love, towards us, he made us alive together with Christ. Why are you a believer here? And why are they not out there? It's not because you're better. It's not because you're so smart. It's not because you're so wealthy and you add something to God's plate. We are all equally unlovely in God's sight. But God takes the things that are unlovely and makes them lovely. He sets his heart on things that are despised and raises them up. It's because he loves you with unmerited, binding, and faithful love, an everlasting love. Lastly, we've looked at who is the you, what is this love? Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? We see this in verses 9 through 10. He says this, Know therefore this, take this with you, he's saying, The Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. What Moses is doing here in verses 9 and 10, he's done Countless times, probably, to the people of Israel. If you remember Exodus chapter 34, and you go back there, you'll remember after the golden calf incident, after the the people of God have rebelled against God, and Moses has prayed to the Lord, and Moses says, I want to see your glory. I want to see your glory. And God says, you can't see the front side, but I'll let you see the back side. And he reveals and pass by and proclaims his name. And the idea of someone's name in the Old Testament and in the Bible isn't simply a sound, a tag. It conveys to us who you are in your essence, your character, your being, your reputation. Who are you? God says this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. 
And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. Why? For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. The heart of a pastor, isn't it? Or should be. Who is this Lord? Moses has heard this over and over and you'll see throughout the scriptures these same two basic themes. God's goodness and his justice, his grace and his righteousness and holiness all mixed together who our Lord is. He says, first of all, he says, know that the Lord, your God, is God. But don't pass by real quick the fact that he says he's your God. You see, it's one thing to say, I believe in God, God out there. Yeah, God will do this, God will do that, but is he your God? You see, it's, it would be one thing for me if I was with my wife and say, that, that's her over there, that's her. Yeah, she's doing this, she's doing that. But then whenever I say, she's my wife, she has a special relationship to me that she does not have with anybody else here. And when God says to you, you can take me into possession in a sense, I am your God. And you're my people. Well, it's almost like a marriage, isn't it? Same image is used in the Bible of God and his people. We are his people. He is our God. It reminds me of whenever Paul would say, whenever he's saying uh, about the Lord Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me. Those personal pronouns, as you maybe know and have heard, are at the heart of what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. So who is this God? Who is your God, beloved? Well, first of all, he's the only God. He says, know this, the Lord your God is God. You see, in light of all the things that you've seen and heard with your eyes, after the Passover, after the way that he worked miraculously in Egypt, after he blasted a hole through the Red Sea and destroyed the superpower army of Pharaoh because he's the superpower God. After he led them through the wilderness, fed them from heaven, defeated their enemies, took care of them. Know this, your God is the only one that exists. He is the only God. Therefore, you bind yourselves exclusively to him and to him alone, whenever you go into the land of Canaan, do not go and pursue all of those other gods because they're going to look good and their, their, their worship and their style and what they tell you to believe is going to be exactly what your sensual passions want to follow. But you know this, they are vain, filthy idols. You serve the living God and follow him and him alone. Not simply are we to be devoted to him alone, but also this is, a, this is the charter of freedom. Because at this time, people would say, yeah, of course, we believe the Lord. He's, he's a God, but there's all these other gods too. And you can, you can have all of them. So you don't need just simply one God. You can have three, four, five, countless. But do you realize how enslaving it is to have more than one master? 
Some of you today, you know what it's like to go out into the world and you know what the Lord God calls you to do, but then you feel all the tugs of all of these other people trying to say that they're your master too, whether that be your work or your family or the, the culture around us. Our culture's full of small g gods and goddesses, all of calling for your devotion and your allegiance. The Lord Jesus here through the text of scripture, and I should say Moses here, is calling you and me to realize that we are free from serving any other God. We serve him and him alone, and we are free. God's telling them, I broke your chains. You follow me. I'm your father. You're my children. I will love you. You don't have to serve them anymore. I have set you free from sin, slavery, and the devil. You're mine. He is the only God. And we are to serve him alone. He is the faithful God. He keeps covenant and steadfast love to a thousand generations. The word for faithful is also the same word root where we get the word for amen. Because what we're saying here and the idea of faithfulness here is that he is certain, sure, steadfast, constant, He's a rock. He never, ever changes. And we can count on him. Isn't that what Moses says later on? This is your rock, O Israel. Trust in this. He's not like the gods of all the nations who are always changing and fickle and weak. Your God is the one who's chosen you and who is the unchangeable, consuming fire. He spoke to you from Horeb. And you heard his voice and you did not die. He is your God. He is faithful, sure, and steadfast. And he will keep all of his promises to you. And whenever we say amen, what we're saying is, Lord, you're faithful, that's true. Amen, so let it be. We're casting ourselves. That's why one old uh, definition of faith says it is receiving and resting upon Jesus Christ as he is offered to us in the gospel. Faith is resting upon a sure and steadfast God who never changes, never gives up on us. He keeps covenant with us. He is full of steadfast love. The idea of steadfast love here is not primarily emotion, but it's that he fulfills all of the obligations and the promises that he himself says he will. God is not, under no obligation to do anything for us, right? But he says voluntarily of his own free will, I will be your God. And I will keep every single one of those obligations to you. I will forgive you of your sins. I will sanctify you. I will raise you from the dead. And I will bring you home to heaven with me. And I will be with you from here till doomsday. And then after. I will be there. He is a faithful God. He loves us. He's full of steadfast love. And notice the phrase, to a thousand generations. This is a simple way of saying, forever, without end. You are faithful to a thousand generations in lamentations. They would say, great is your faithfulness, O God, to us. He loves us. And some of us, though, we think, and you could think about Israel. Well, maybe Israel later on would start thinking, well, you know what? After all that we've done to God, maybe you know, he keeps his obligations to us. But does he like us? After, I mean, think of all the stuff they've done to him. 
and sinned against him? Does his love grown cold? The answer is no. He still loves you, he says, because the Lord loves you. Matthew Henry says this, the great God not only loves his saints, but he loves to love them. Have you ever thought about that? God doesn't simply put up with you. He loves to love you. Abounding. Not simply a God who keeps his obligations. Abounding. Super abounding, cup overflowing love. Devotion. Steadfastness and mercy. He loves to love us. He also, though, not only is a faithful God who keeps covenant, but he says he's the repaying God in verse 10. And he repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. So we see a contrast here. There are those who love the Lord because he first loved them. And then there are those who hate the Lord and consistently refuse his offers of forgiveness. They hate the Lord, whereas love binds together, hate separates and drives apart. These people are telling God, we want nothing to do with you. We've got our life in hand. Thank you very much. We don't need you right now, God. Because these people either think they've got it all together, they think they are righteous, or they think they can buy God off and don't really have to love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They hate the Lord. And God says he will not be slack with the one who hates him. In other words, I will do it at the right time. Do not worry about my justice, he's saying. And we see both of these things in God's name in Exodus 34 and consistently repeated throughout the whole refrain of scripture. God loves to love sinners. And he loves to forgive sinners. And if you're in here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, he would love to forgive you. However, if you choose to reject his offers of grace, you have chosen his justice and his destruction. And your own destruction. He will repay those who hate him by destroying them. And he will repay you to your face. Paul says that the same gospel that is a savor on the one hand of life to some is also the savor of death to others. How is that? How can Jesus Christ and free love and this God right here that Moses is talking about on the one hand be a savor of life to life and on the other hand a savor of death to death? The sad reality is, is there are countless who reject him. And yet, it is our calling to proclaim to them this God because he loves to love sinners. And he will welcome them all into his arms who come to him through his son, Jesus Christ. Israel was to know, and we are to know today, that the great God of heaven and earth who loves us is still a consuming fire. We do not want to get too comfortable and casual in our relationship with God. Our relationship with God is deeply intimate and personal, 
but it is never casual. It is never casual. The psalmist says in Psalm 76, verse 7, but you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is aroused? This is our God. This is the God that we serve. Moses here is pouring his heart into these people. And you know the heart of a pastor, and you know the heart of Moses here. He wants them to follow the Lord because he can't go across with them. But he wants to give them these words one last time. And he reiterates into their ears one last time, because the Lord loves you. Whenever you go into that land, don't you ever doubt this. The Lord loves you. He's chosen you. He's treasured you. He's made you holy. Serve the Lord your God and trust him and gather at his footstool. Hold fast to him. Cling to him. Obey him. Hold fast to him and to him alone because he is your life and your length of days. Look to him in every distress. Worship him. Serve him. Obey all of his commandments. That's what he says there in verse 11 again. I read one commentary who says, after what Moses has just said here in the preceding verses, it's almost like verse 11 is a time to just catch your breath after what you see who God is. Look to him in every situation. Here is your God, beloved. And this God has not changed at all. The Lord God of Israel is our God. He has revealed himself with his one name, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And Israel was given a mission. They were to go and to exterminate the idolaters. And that was a unique mission given to them at that time and place. Our mission is different. Our mission is to take the sword of the Spirit and to break the chains off of sinners' hands. And to proclaim the year of liberty. The year of freedom and of salvation of our God. Because this God, the God of Sinai, has revealed himself not on Mount Sinai anymore. But on Mount Calvary. Where he sent his son. His only son. To take all of the wrath and the just vengeance for our sins upon himself. And it was at that cross, at that mountaintop, not Sinai anymore, but Mount Calvary, Golgotha, that he showed for all the world to see because the Lord loves you. Because the Lord loves you. Jesus Christ would say this, and this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Friends, if you come here today with consciences weighed down, you know you're not the person you should be. Maybe you don't tell other people about that. You don't tell your wife or your husband or your children. But you've got a bad conscience. Here's a place to wash that conscience. Here's a place to come and to know that the faithful God is the God of steadfast love and he forgives and offers you eternal life today. And if you're a Christian, he says, come back again and wash again.
rewash again. You know, um, you know, sometimes you've got that time on the, on the washing machine and you can choose how many times to rinse and everything. I have to come back to the gospel fountain countless times to get re-rinsed, re-cleansed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering as we go forth. For he who promised is faithful. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Let's pray together. Our great God of heaven, we thank you for revealing to us your name, your character and your heart. We pray that this truth would be written upon our hearts, that it would go through our ears, through our minds and sink into the deepest part of our beings so that we would hear what Moses has to say to us because we know that he spoke as the Holy Spirit carried him along. And everything he said points forward to you, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we would know what it is to be your holy people, that as we fight sin, as we engage in this spiritual warfare, as we live our lives, we would remember who we are in Jesus Christ and in God, and that every single time we are cast with doubt or shame or uncertainty, our whole beings would cast ourselves upon this rock because the Lord loves you. For Christ's sake, amen.